I invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes and chapter 3. We are working our way chapter by chapter through this wisdom book, and we are in our third week, so we find ourselves in the third chapter this morning. And as we've been preaching through this book the last few weeks, I've heard in passing many of our church members say something like this, you know, I've read Ecclesiastes several times, maybe dozens of times, but I've never quite understood it. Uh, it's, it's a very mysterious, widely misunderstood, quite difficult book to interpret. Um, our aim, though, I'll remind you, is week after week to unfold the text, to make sense of it, explain it, so that we can understand it. And our aim is not just more knowledge. Our aim is knowledge that leads to obedience. Uh, We live to glorify God. We live to obey Him as His people. And the reality is we can't obey what we don't understand. And so I'll just remind you of that focus as we work through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Certainly we don't want you saying, man, that sermon was deep, but I don't know what the preacher was talking about. That, That doesn't do much for us. And so we will certainly strive by the Spirit's help to understand the Word of God in Ecclesiastes. If you're new here, or maybe joining us for the first time in a while, let me fill you in. The book of Ecclesiastes, it was written some 2,500 to 2,900 years ago, and Ecclesiastes is the autobiography of one man who had it all and had done it all with the aim of answering the great question of our lives. That is, how can I get the most out of what little time I have in this world? 70, 80, if we're fortunate, perhaps 90 years How can we make the most of that time as God's people? And I'll remind you, in chapter 1, the author referred to throughout the book as the preacher gave us his thesis. You may remember he used the language of vanity. He said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You might remember the Hebrew word behind that is the word hevel. Hevel, it refers to a mist a vapor, something that's fleeting or elusive, something we can't quite get a firm grasp on. He says everything in life is like that. It's a a vapor, it's hevel, and he uses that 40 times throughout the book. Later in chapter 1, he confronted us with a question with which all of us must reckon if we want to make the most out of our time here. He asked, chapter 1, verse 3, at the end of the day, What really do we gain from our work? That is, maybe at the end of our lives, looking back, sober-mindedly asking the question, in the grand scheme of things, have I really gained anything in this life? The question of gain. And in chapter 2, last week, Pastor Steve covered this exceptionally well. We were challenged with a really profound perspective. You may remember that the things of this world are gifts to be enjoyed, not gain for, for ourselves. Gifts, not gain. And it's with that we now turn our attention to chapter 3. Chapter 3, a very well-known passage, perhaps one of the, some of the most famous words in all the Old Testament are found in chapter 3. But I want to preface this chapter with a quote from Thomas Aquinas. He was a medieval theologian, and here's what he said. Theology is the study of all things in relation to God. 
Theology is the study of all things in relation to God. All things. Think about it for a minute. Uh, Many of us have a theology of suffering. That is, we know what God says about suffering. We have a theology of the church. We have a theology of Christ and his person and work. We have a theology of salvation. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the preacher is going to outline a theology of time. A theology of time. How do we view time in relation to God? How do we have a God-centered perspective on time? Time is something we never seem to have enough of. Time is something over which we have no control. And time past is something we can neither undo nor relive. The question the preacher has for the Christian is this, how can we glorify and honor God in time and with our time? You know, many of us have never given this a second thought. And that's the benefit, by the way, of preaching through books of the Bible is that we would encounter certain subjects and themes that perhaps we would not normally be drawn to. But the preacher is going to give us a crash course in a theology, a God-centered view of time. And so follow along as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. It'll be on page 519 in the Pew Bibles in front of you, if you would like to turn there. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. 
So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And we'll use the first part of verse 11 of chapter 3 for our guiding theme today. It is this. God makes everything beautiful in its time. God makes everything beautiful in its time. And maybe that's worth the price of admission for some of you today who are walking in here suffering, navigating hardship. Your faith is weak because you're wondering how to reconcile your present hardship with the good character of God. And maybe you need to hear the promise from Ecclesiastes 3 that God does make all things beautiful, even your suffering, in its time. And I've organized my notes under four headings where the preacher really makes four reflections of God in relation to time. Four reflections on time. The first is in verses 1 through 8 where he gives us this poem of time relating to the human experience. Time and the human experience. Give you some context to this chapter. Really, we look backwards. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The preacher has just described where he tried to find fulfillment in life. He tried to find fulfillment in pleasure, in wisdom, gaining insight, knowledge, studying. And then he tried to find fulfillment, meaning, purpose in his work. And here's where he ended up. Chapter 2, verse 17. He says, after finding these things empty, quote, I hated life. I hated life, the preacher said. He said, I looked to the things of the world. At the end of the day, my thesis holds up. They're all hevel. It's fleeting and elusive. It promises substance but gives no true gain. And perhaps for some of us, you can resonate with the preacher in that you have tried to define your life, find your purpose and meaning in pleasure or knowledge or work. And if you're honest, you would take chapter 2, verse 17 and say, I resonate with the preacher here where he says, I hated life. Some of you, frankly, you despair of life. You hate life because you are looking for meaning, purpose, goodness, fulfillment in heaven. And as the preacher will labor to show us here and throughout the rest of the book, Hevel is not a good foundation upon which to build our lives. It just leads to hating and despising life. So really you could say that mortality, the end, is on the preacher's mind after chapter 2. And so he presses into it a little bit. He doesn't suppress it or ignore it or move on or distract himself. He says, let's explore this issue of time, and let's try and find God in it. And so that's where we have chapter 3. We have, like I said earlier, perhaps some of the most famous words in all the Old Testament. Uh, One of our volunteers this morning asked me what I was preaching on, said Ecclesiastes 3. He said, you know, I think there's a song in the 60s about Ecclesiastes 3 by the birds. I certainly wasn't around uh, during that time. Legend has it, the birds uh, uh, sang a song. They ripped off Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And uh, lo and behold, they did. It's a very well-known song, a very well-known poem. This would have been a song uh, in Hebrew culture, indeed. And uh, maybe you've been to a funeral of someone that doesn't know the Lord. You may have heard this read in their eulogy. Very well-known 
words, I also want to point out to you that Ecclesiastes 3, verses 2 through 8, this poem is a complete catalog of the human experience. The preacher labors to show us every possible thing that could happen to man in his life. And he shows that by organizing his poem really strategically. There are 28 actions in this poem, broken down into 14 lines, two pairs of seven. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that seven represented in Hebrew culture uh, the number of completion. This is a complete catalog of the human experience. And for the purpose of our time today, I want to point out, very simply, three observations from this text for God's people. The first danger of stating the obvious is this. We live in time, and parenthetically, God does not. We live in time, God does not. This is what the preacher means when, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, under the sun. This is the perspective from which the preacher taught. As it were, God is above the sun. He's above the loom. We are beneath it. We are in time. God is outside of time. We are finite. God is infinite. This is fundamental to the creator-creature distinction. Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, says, God is transcendent, quote, he declares the end from the beginning. Only one who is outside of time is able to ordain time in such a way so as to declare the end from the beginning and all in between. We live in time. God does not. Second observation is that, frankly, we control very little. We control very little. And to prove this, let's just look at one example. Right in verse 2. Preacher says, there's a time to be born. Let me ask you this. How much say did you have in the moment and day of your birth? The answer is none. In fact, interestingly, even when you ask someone, when were you born? Well, I was born. This is passive language. Birth is something that happens to you. You're, you're born into time. If you want to test that theory, ask your mother. What did I contribute to my birth? She'll say, a lot of pain and a lot of beauty. Right? Nothing. Uh, we were brought into this world. It, it, it happened to us and outside of us. Or how about this, the second part of verse 2. There's a time to plant and a time essentially to harvest, to pluck up what is planted. Uh, if, if you're a farmer, you know that you cannot plant in the winter when the ground is frozen. We're dependent on the seasons. At the end of the day, we control very little. We control very little. Time goes on. Third observation, this is from verse 1. We experience life in seasons. We experience life in seasons. In this complete catalog of the human experience, we see that some of these seasons are positive. Man, a season of laughter and dancing and loving is wonderful. Some seasons, contrarily, are negative. Time for war, time to hate, weeping, mourning, losing. But there are also some seasons that are just neutral. It is what it is. A time to tear and a time to sow. Yeah, life happens. You deal with it and you move on. 
The preacher is trying to show us that regardless of what uh, moral value we assign to the seasons of our life, life goes on. Time marches on. And the fact that life happens in seasons can be good in certain circumstances. Think about it. Uh, You don't want to be in a season of suffering, sorrow, and mourning forever. You'll be glad to see those days go. But it can also be simultaneously disheartening, the fact that life occurs in seasons. You ever share a good meal with friends late into the night, and you think, I just don't want this to end. It's a little disheartening when time marches on. Sunday night, the weekend just was not long enough, and it's disheartening that you have to go back to work the next day. These are the rhythms, the ordinary seasons of life, and the preacher is careful to point those out to us. Time in the human experience is the water in which we swim, so to speak. It's time. The second observation or reflection the preacher will make is time in relation to eternity. This is verses 9 through 13. And we have, really want to focus on verse 11, the second reference to time. We have in verse 11 a promise and what we may call a paradox. A promise and a paradox. First part of verse 11. He, that is God, has made everything beautiful, there's our word, in its time. That's the promise. In other words, the preacher is saying, hear me, in God's plan, nothing is without purpose or out of place. Think about that. In God's plan, nothing is without purpose and out of place. And it's a distinctive of the God-fear. It's a distinctive of the church, of the Christian, someone with God at the center of his or her worldview. Only then are we able to say, you know what, there's a purpose to my suffering. You know what, there's a purpose to my trial. There's a purpose to my loss. There's a purpose to my hardship. Because God, who has declared the end from the beginning, is working, Paul will say, Romans 8, all things for the good of those who love him. He makes everything beautiful. Here's the key, though, in its time. In its time. To understand this verse properly does not mean we callous our hearts or uh, harden our hearts toward suffering and hardship. We don't act uh, with some cavalier indifference toward suffering, saying, hey, you know what? This is okay. God will get me through it. No, it's good to mourn, it's good to process grief and sorrow. Jesus wept. It's good to do that, but here's the, here's the difference. We aren't driven to despair because we serve a God who, Isaiah, declares the end from the beginning. We serve a God who, promise, makes everything beautiful in its time. It'll take time. And whether this side of eternity or the other, God will make it right. We can be sure of that. That's the first part of verse 11. But we now have the paradox, second part of verse 11. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. A paradox are two truths that seem to be contradictory, but upon further study, they actually make sense together. And the paradox is, on the one hand, we live in time. We are bound by time. 
On the other, we were made for eternity. We're time-bound creatures made for eternity. That's what the preacher is saying. Here's a startling truth. You were not made to die. No, God created man upright, placed him in a garden to work it and to keep it, to live in eternal, unstained, untainted fellowship between the creature and the creator. But as Paul says, Romans 5, through sin, death entered the world. And so now we live in those cyclical effects of sin and decay and brokenness. That wasn't God's original intent or design. And so we now are faced with this paradox of living in time while having eternity in our hearts. And this explains our longing, doesn't it? You may remember in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the preacher observes that our eyes are never satisfied with seeing. Our ears are never filled with hearing. There's always something more to satisfy us. There's always one more promotion to obtain. There's always more money to have in the bank account. There's always more vacation to take. And that longing is God-given, eternity in your heart, but it's misplaced. We often try to look to Hevel, the preacher would say, the things of this world, to fulfill our longing, but certainly they never will. Yes, it explains our longing. It also explains our frustration. I don't know about you, but I hate to see things that I bought brand new start to rust. Like what, what a symbol and sign of decay and the fleeting nature of the things of this world. So practical. Or a project you spend a month or two working on and only see some seasons come and go and then it just wipes away all your work. That's frustrating. That's frustrating. We, we weren't made for this world. We were made for eternity, un, unstained, uh, sinless fellowship with God. Eternity is in our hearts. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. I love this quote. He said, if I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. C.S. Lewis was an atheist for much of his life, converts to Christ and says, oh, yeah, this makes sense of why I was so discontent all of those years. I wasn't made for this world. Eternity's in my heart, and I was suppressing it. But certainly... Through redemption in Christ, we see that eternity is in our hearts and we look forward to that future with our Savior. Time and eternity. The third observation the preacher makes is time in relation to God's sovereignty. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. Preacher says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. This is good theology. And let me pause here and say that the preacher is really contrasting this idea of hevel, vapor, a fleeting, elusive mist with the work of God. It says all the things in this world are fleeting, they're subject to futility and decay. But what God does, verse 14, that endures forever. He goes on to say, nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it. So the people fear before him. This is a statement on the sovereignty of God. And to use an illustration, we might liken this to a, a monarchy. Of course, as Westerners, we don't really have a good grasp on what it's like to live in a monarchy. We're in a democracy. 
We could look across the pond to our friends in Britain, but the reality is they're in a constitutional monarchy. The people still have a pretty big say in the affairs of their government. Know the equivalent in this time period to what the preacher was referring to in terms of sovereignty would really be a dictatorship. One person, usually a king, with ultimate decisive authority over a people in a place. That's a monarchy. That's sovereignty. Unmatched, unrivaled authority over a people in a place. And as you can imagine, if you would live in a monarchy where your monarch was a bad fellow, it would make life pretty miserable for you and your family. And so we can tend to, with this sovereignty language, kind of shrink back and be like, I, it makes me uncomfortable because we've seen so many human abuses of sovereignty and power and authority. But man, God's people rejoice in God's sovereignty because God is not only great and powerful, he is good, kind, compassionate, and merciful. And so God's sovereignty is a blessing. And the preacher, in relation to time, is saying God is sovereign. God has decisive authority. Not only over the events of the world, but the timing of those events. God has done it. No one can add to it. No one can take away from it. In Acts chapter 17, Paul, preaching to the people of Athens, says that God has determined the allotted boundaries and periods of time in which people live. Here's the truth. Here's the encouragement. You are right where God would have you in this moment. God has determined that you would be here for such a time as this. You're right where God wants you. And so as believers, we have the privilege and the blessing of asking God, God, you have me here for what purpose? Who do you want me to reach with the gospel? Who might I be able to come alongside in this season, in this location, and bless? You're right where God wants you. He, he's determined that you would be here in this allotted time within this allotted boundary. Not only that, but I've been meditating on the words of Psalm 31:15 this week in relation to time, where the psalmist says, my times are in your hand. Listen, it is a good thing to bow a knee before our sovereign God and say, though I might not fully understand why I am here in this place for this time, though I might not fully understand why this hardship has come into my life, why my family is being broken up, though I might not understand that, it is good to bow a knee and say, God, you do, and my times are in your hand. You're right where God would have you, and your times are in his hands. That's comforting, isn't it? The sovereignty of God, the providence of God in the daily affairs of life. We lastly turn to consider as we conclude time in relation to death. Time in relation to death. Verse 16, moreover, and exploring a new tenet now, moreover I saw under the sun 
that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. What the preacher is doing here is looking out into the world, see if you can relate to this, looking out into the world, looking at the news cycle, and he's bringing his concerns before God. He says, God, I'm so perplexed by this oppression and brokenness and evil and sinfulness in the world. Why is there evil in the place of righteousness? Why is there so much hypocrisy in the church? It's like the cry of Habakkuk, chapter 1. He says, God, how long? Are you going to be silent forever? He's bringing his burden before God. And he comforts himself with the doctrine of God's judgment. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked in his time. You know, for Christians... The time of judgment is not a time of fear. We're in Christ. The time of judgment is a time of justice, where the good God will make right all that is wrong in the world. Oppression, it won't last forever. One day in his time, God will rule and reign with perfect equity and justice, repaying justly to those whom inflicted us with evil. It's the doctrine of judgment, and it will happen at the time of death. You say, well, that's awfully sobering. Just wait, it gets worse. Verses 18 through 22. The preacher goes on to say, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that's people, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts, literally animals. Verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is hevel. So for a moment, he sees a glimmer of hope. You know what? I am comforted by the fact that God will judge rightly in his perfect timing. But immediately he falls back into this pattern of despair. And he reflects on the fact, verse 20, we all go to one place, whether man or animal. All are from dust, and when we breathe our last, we return to dust. From dust and to dust. Certainly the preacher has in mind Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the creation account of man where God is said to have formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed in him the breath of life. We are but dust. We are but dust. And so it's as if the preacher is saying, if you were to sit down and write, write out your greatest achievements, at the end of every achievement, you need to put a footnote. And that footnote needs to read, no matter how impressive this sounds, at the end of the day, I'm just dust. From dust and to dust. And you say that, it's depressing. It's reality. 
The preacher doesn't shy away from reality. He says, this is what you are. And friend, if we have the right perspective, this is freeing. It's freeing. It teaches us what we should and should not expect out of life. If you're trying to build up a nest egg and a safety and think, look, every good thing that I can possibly have will be had in this life, you're going to be very disappointed when you breathe your last and just go back to being dust. It's hevel. Or the preacher will say, from dust and to dust we return. In relation to time, God makes everything beautiful in its time. And I'm encouraged by the sobering message of the preacher in Ecclesiastes because he reflects on time as it relates to our experience and eternity and sovereignty and death and the demands of the day today in our lives. We're, we're busy, we carry uh, burdens, we lead busy, full schedules. I understand that. We don't often get time to think about where is God in all of these things. And the preacher does that for us. He invites us to reflect on and see God in the ordinary. To see God in all of life. And what a precious promise we have that God makes everything beautiful in its time. And I'll close with this. This truth of God making all things beautiful in time is seen clearest in the person of Christ. Who, as Galatians 4 verse 4 says, came in the fullness of time. And he subjected himself to a horrific death on the cross. So if you're here today and you're wondering, how could God ever make beautiful the hardship and suffering that I'm enduring right now? How? If you're having a hard time reconciling your present circumstances with the character of God. Life is really rough, but you know God is good. How does that make sense? We look no further than the cross, where even in time, God made the cross beautiful. For as God's people, we stand redeemed in the shadow of the cross. Let's pray.